Would you join me in prayer? We praise you, Heavenly Father, because you loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son to die for us. And that by the power of your Spirit, we've been been enabled to believe in you so that we might not perish but have eternal life. And so we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are our God, that we are your people. And though you are holy, you have made a way for sinful people like us to be reconciled to you. And that way is through that great sacrifice of your own Son on the cross. And so, Lord, we hear the message again and again. We read it over and over in the Bible, and yet it is ever fresh to us. It is ever compelling and endearing to us. Because, Lord, we see day after day that we are... uh, people who are riddled with sin and riddled with failure, and to think that Christ would die for us takes our breath away. And so we worship you this morning. We give you the praise and the honor, and we pray that you would continue to do a purifying work in our hearts. We want both our hands and our hearts to be cleansed, inside and outside, God. Make us holy. Lord, I pray for this congregation gathered here, that you would be at work in this church, that you might open our hearts by your Spirit. Lord, as we sing, as we study your Word, We don't want to just go through the routine motions of worship. We want to hear from You, our God and Father. And so we pray in a few moments as we open up the Bible that You would speak to our hearts. That we might hear the very words of God spoken to us through the Bible and the Holy Spirit. That we might be able to go home today saying, I heard from God and from His Word. Lord, continue to strengthen this church. Keep this church focused on Jesus. Keep this church, Lord, compassionate for those around us on the South Shore of Boston and in New England who don't know Christ. Lord, make us a praying church. Lord, I pray, keep us a church that has a heart for Your kingdom around the world. Help us not to be satisfied with a little uh, puny vision, but Lord, give us a huge heart for what You are doing in places around the world where people simply cannot hear the Gospel. Lord, I pray that we'd be a missions church. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that loves one another. That when people walk through these doors, they would experience your love and your warmth through us. Lord, keep us from being a cold church, a critical church, a self-absorbed church. And help us, Lord, to be filled up with your love for one another. May this be a place, Lord, where people enter into real relationships and find real fellowship in you. And Lord, we just pray that you'd continue working in our midst. Do not give up on this congregation, and we know you won't, because you died for us. And Lord, if you gave your only Son, how will you not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And so as we come to your word this morning, we come with expectancy. Speak to us now. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Any children here? Ages kindergarten to second grade may be dismissed to children's church. And I would invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Today we're studying Luke chapter 6. And if you're using a pew Bible, and perhaps you're unfamiliar with Luke, you can find that on page 1021. Luke chapter 6, page 1021. Today we're studying verses 43 to 45. Luke chapter 6, which is an extended sermon by Jesus, in which He's teaching us the nature of true discipleship. What does it mean to really be a follower of Christ? Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45. Let me read the text and we'll dig in. Jesus said, No good tree bears bad fruit, 
nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. I was reading an internet yarn about a uh, Christian lady who was driving down the freeway, and you know she had one of those fish symbols, bumper stickers on her car, and she had some other Christian bumper stickers on her car, and <clears throat> she was going down the freeway, but this particular day, she was uh, going full tilt, uh, just speeding down the freeway. She was in a hurry. Everyone was moving too slow, tailgating, flashing her lights, honking her horn, getting people to move over, and you know, just mad at how slow everybody was going and very animated and, you know, breaking the speed limit and driving somewhat recklessly. And sure enough, she looks in the rearview mirror and there's the police lights behind her. So she pulls over and she's thinking, I am so busted. I have just been speeding and it's so blatant. I mean, I've got no defense. I'm, I'm caught. And sure enough, the cop comes out of the car. But instead of his ticket book out, he has his piece out. And, and he... Basically, there's a sort of a full felony stop, you know. Throw your keys out of the car. Let me see your hands. You know, hands on the hood. Cuffs her, puts her in the back of the cruiser, locks her in, and then proceeds to rummage around her car and get her license and registration and all that stuff. And eventually comes back and lets her out of the car and says, well, ma'am, you know, I'm going to have to give you a speeding ticket. You're going too fast. And, and also a ticket for, you know, some reckless driving. And she says, you know, okay, I, I know I was speeding, but why did you... You know, put me in handcuffs and throw me in your cruiser. And he says, oh, well, when I drove up behind your car, I saw the Christian bumper stickers. And when I saw the way you were driving, I assumed the car was stolen. So, uh, you know. <laughs> so how do you know if someone is really a Christian? What are the identifying marks of a real follower of Jesus? You can always tell who a Hare Krishna is, right? They have the shaved heads and the robes and ding, 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 they, you know, make noise and dance around and ask for money. You can pretty easily spot Mormon missionaries. They're the guys who on a sweltering afternoon in August will be walking down your street, full suit and tie with a backpack and a big, you know, double barrel Bible Book of Mormon carrying case, and you, you can spot them. You know a Sikh when you see a Sikh because of the turban. But how do you identify a Christian? Are we the people who have the fish things on our cars? Is it by our bumper stickers that we are known? Uh, is it the WWJD accessories that identifies us as followers of Christ? Uh, do you sit outside of a church on a Sunday morning and as cars drive into the church, you say, well, that person and that person and that person must be Christians because they're going into a church. Does membership in a church make one a Christian? Is that the identifying characteristic? Is it uh, undergoing a ritual like baptism or something like that? If you're baptized as an infant or as an, as an adult or something, is, is that for sure say this is what marks us as a Christian? Because certainly Christians are baptized, but is it, does it logically go the other way that if you're baptized, therefore you must be a Christian? What are the identifying marks of true Christianity? How do you know a disciple? Well, fortunately here in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45, Jesus, the founder of our faith, the author of our faith tells us what he considers to be the identifying characteristics or marks of a true apprentice 
of Jesus. And he does it by a simple analogy. This is a simple analogy from the agrarian world of plants and trees that would have been very familiar to an agrarian culture. And he says in verse 43, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. That's the principle. A tree is recognized by its fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. So it's very simple. Two kinds of trees. There's good trees, there's bad trees. Which is which? Well, you can't tell until they produce their fruit. Boy, that tree looks good. Then the harvest time comes and the apples are all small and shriveled and unedible. And and that tree over there that you thought was nothing has got these big juicy apples. You say, oh, that's the good tree. That's the bad tree. You you can tell when the the fruit is there. Uh, Some of you are familiar with this. Some of you are gardeners. And you think, ah, I need to plant something right here in this spot in my backyard. And so you get the gardening catalogs out and you look at the pictures of flowering trees and fruit plants and you start looking at them. Of course, in the pictures, it always looks incredible. Like, oh, that rose. That rose would look perfect in my backyard right outside the back patio. And so you order it and you, you know, it gets there and you take the, you know, thing out and you put the water in the roots to moisten them up. Then you put them in the soil and you plant the thing. Uh, or maybe you go to Home Depot or to some garden center and you're looking around at plants and you say, that's the plant I want. That's the one I saw in the catalog. So you look at the plant and you can't tell if it's going to be a good flower or not. Uh, and, and so you, you kind of look at it and there, of course, in the pot is that little plastic picture that they always have of what the plant is going to look like when it's fully blooming. And you go, oh, that's what it's going to look like. Okay, we'll go for it. So you plant it. And how do you know whether or not you bought a real deal or a real dud? You just got to wait and see. And maybe it comes up and it's beautiful and the fruit is gorgeous and the flowers are exactly what you wanted. Or sometimes you plant it and you're like, that's not what I, that's not the color rhododendron that I wanted. Look at the color. Ah, you know, it's it's all faded. I want it to be brighter. I want it to be pinker or more red or the flowers are so puny. Ah, what a waste. You can't tell what you bought until the fruit or the flower or whatever you're looking for comes out. And that's when you can identify the quality or we'd say today genetics of the plant. So there's the analogy. Very simple. You probably didn't even need that big explanation for me because it's so easy to understand. Well, here's the application, verse 45. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So the analogy is fairly transparent. We have trees, and trees are like people. People are like trees. Uh, There's good trees and bad trees, and so there's people who have good hearts and bad hearts. And just as you can't tell what kind of tree it is, you can't see inside a person because the heart is an invisible, secret thing. Uh, And and so there's some people with good hearts and there's some people with evil hearts. Now, I should also probably clarify what Jesus likely means by that. When Jesus is talking about a good heart, what he means, and especially if you look at the whole context of Luke and the way he uses the words good and evil in Luke, what he's talking about is a person with a good heart is a person who follows Christ and knows God as a disciple of Jesus. And I just want to point that out because I think when we, in sort of our common English usage, use the phrase having a good heart, we don't use it that specifically. You know, we, we say about everybody, oh, he had a good heart. I mean, yeah, he got in some trouble with the law and, and you know, has these problems in that situation. But the kid's got a good heart. You know, we say that. And it's just kind of how we talk. And, you know, according to our definition of that phrase, pretty much everyone on planet Earth has a good heart. Uh, but according to Jesus, 
A good heart, really, I think in this context, in the context of Luke, is somebody who belongs to God, is a follower of Christ, is a true disciple. In other words, how do you know if someone's really a disciple of Christ? And the answer is, you look at the fruit. So you have the tree, you have people, good trees, bad trees, good people, bad people. And then just as the trees bear fruit, so the analogy goes, people bear fruit. What's fruit? Well, fruit is that which is visible. If the heart is the invisible essence of who I am, my soul, my identity, my character, then the the fruit are the outward manifestations that come out of who I am. They're the things that you can see and that you can identify. Like what? Well, like here in verse 45. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So, for instance, what I say and the way I speak and the things I uh, do with my mouth reveal the condition of my heart. That's fruit. So, um, what do I do with my mouth? Do I curse and do I criticize and do I condemn and do I slander people behind their backs and do I tell lies and half-truths and three-quarter truths all the time? And I'm the kind of person who likes to gossip and the kind of person who likes to stir up trouble with my mouth. Or do I use my mouth to praise God, thank God, bless others, encourage others, or as Jesus taught us, he said, when you know, someone curses, you bless. If someone abuses, you pray for them. And so is my mouth used to pray? Is it used to bless and encourage? Is my mouth an instrument for the kingdom of God? Or is my mouth an instrument for the kingdom of Jeremy and his purposes? Which one is it? And so the, the words we speak are examples of fruit. Or just to give you another example of fruit from Luke, if you put a bookmark here in Luke 6, and just turn back a few pages to Luke 3, just a few pages... Here's another instance where Luke uses the imagery of trees and fruit. Luke 3, chapter 7. Sorry, Luke chapter 3, verse 7. And here is Luke uh, telling about John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? We read about him a couple months ago. If you were here then. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! He's just a really good, warm, fuzzy preacher. He said, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And then get this. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So the people were coming to repent. That was his baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. And John says, That's great. You're repenting. Fine. But produce fruit. Show that the internal, invisible repentance of the heart is real by the way you live your life. For example, verse 10. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. The one who has food should do the same. That's fruit. That's an evidence of an internal heart change. Verse 12, the tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Verse 14, then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Isn't it interesting that all the fruit he talked about has to do with money? Because our, our money really is close to our hearts. Uh, and the way we use our resources definitely indicates a lot of where our hearts are at. So, so that's fruit. And we could go on talking about fruit. But if you look back at Luke chapter 6, the analogy is fairly complete now. Just as there are different kinds of trees, there's different kinds of people with different kinds of hearts. And the way you know the kind of tree is by the fruit it produces. And so the way you can identify the kind of person I am, whether or not I'm a follower of Christ, is by the the way I live my life. The 
way I speak, how I use my resources, the way I interact with others, how I respond to hardships, the way I respond to my enemies, how I treat those I love. It's, it's the conduct of my life. That's my fruit, the things that you can see. So, simple enough analogy, simple enough explanation. And I think now that we have it in front of us, we can draw from it at least two uh, foundational insights into the nature of the Christian life. From this text, I think there are at least two axioms of discipleship that we can uh, look at and apply to our lives. And the first one is this. Here's the first one. A transformed life is the evidence of being a true disciple. Let me say that one more time. A transformed life is the evidence of being a true disciple. How do you know if someone is really a Christian? Because they say so. Well, one of the key evidences, you have to have a transformed life. There has to be fruit that's shown. You can't look at anybody and know whether or not they're a Christian. It's just, you can't tell. You can look at someone, they may have a necktie on, or they may have a nose ring. Which is the Christian? I don't know. That, you can't tell. The person may be wearing an Ann Taylor suit, or they may have a tattoo. They may get out of church and get into a Volvo and drive away, or they could be riding a Harley. Which is the Christian? You can't tell by a snapshot of a person. Uh, we have this church photo directory that just came out. I don't know if you guys got a copy of it. I love photo directories. You know, we all love to look at how we look and how bad everyone else looked. And, you know, it's, it's really fun. And, um, and so you look through those things. You know, and you look at the picture and say, okay, which of these are, are really, truly disciples of Christ, are real Christians? And you can't tell. I mean, we don't have it coded like, oh, look, I didn't know he wasn't a Christian. I guess I thought he was, but there's the code. You know, we don't have it. You can't do that. You can't look at a photo and notice that someone's a Christian. You could, however, conceivably, look at a video. If I were to have hidden cameras all over my house and all over my workplace and inside my car, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, there's a reason I don't have a fish on the back of my car. <laughs> and if we, uh, if, if we had hidden cameras, you know, following me around and everywhere I went there was somebody, you know, tracking me, and, and you took all of that and made sort of a reality show of Jeremy for a month, you might have an idea whether or not I was really a follower of Christ because you could see the fruit over time. You could see how I talk to my spouse, how I interact with my coworkers, what I do in private, what I do in public, and, and you could get a picture. And you could say, yeah, you know, I, I see the marks of Christ there. Or you could say, I don't see anything. It, it's by our fruit that we are known. Um, it, it's like in that, uh, that old movie. Remember Jerry Maguire? It's a movie from like 10 years ago. Tom Cruise, right? Tom Cruise is this... Uh, He's a sports agent. He represents athletes. And then there's Cuba Gooding Jr., who's the pro football player. And Tom Cruise is your typical fast-talking agent. He's, you know, I'm working a deal. I'm going to get you a deal. Don't worry. It's going to work out. And what's Cuba Gooding Jr.'s famous line from that movie? Show me the money. <laughs> He's like, I don't want to hear your talk, Tom. Or, you know, Jerry. I want the money. Show me the contract. And it's like Jesus is saying to us, show me the fruit. Where's the fruit? Show me the fruit. Because our human tendency, my human tendency, is to focus not on the fruit, but when it comes to religious things, to focus on uh, rituals and religious traditions. It's just our orientation as people. And I think it's because rituals are so much easier to manage. I can do rituals. 
A whole life bearing fruit, that's a little tougher. That's a little bit invasive. That's in my face. That's everything. So I'll focus on the rituals and the traditions, things that I can manage, just like what the Pharisees did. They're primarily uh, focused on being identified by uh, whether or not they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays and who they came in contact with. So the Pharisees, they would see lepers and they would see tax collectors and prostitutes and other certain people they had in categories and they just stayed away from those people. That's easy to do. Uh, the Pharisees had all of their laws on the Sabbath. They couldn't do this, couldn't do that, couldn't do that. And they had this whole religious system that was kind of loosely based on Scripture, but pretty much all man-made. And then they could keep those rules, and therefore they would say, I identify myself as a godly person because I've kept all these traditions. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he's like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> you, know, you keep all of these rituals and rules, but you, where's the compassion? For those who are hurting. I'm coming with the kingdom of God and you guys are totally missing it because you've missed the whole nub of a transformed life. That's what this is all about. And so he was in a conflict with them over the very essence and nature of the kingdom of God and the identifying marks of the people of God. And you know, we, we do the same thing. No matter what church tradition you're from, there are ways in which we can ritualize and focus on traditions rather than on having a transformed life, which is the real evidence of being a follower of Christ. Uh, you know, some of you grew up in Roman Catholic Church, and you know how, it can, you can do it there. You can, I don't eat meat on Friday. I've got the beads hanging from the rearview mirror. And I know the Mass back and forth. I can say all the right things at all the right time. I know when to sit and kneel, and I can, I can recite the Mass and go through it. And that's doable. But where's the fruit? Is there fruit? Uh, maybe you come from a charismatic background, and you know, you can learn how to fit in. And, and you can learn when the right time is to start raising your hands in the service and swaying. I mean, there's, there's a, a rhythm, there's a flow, even to non-traditional services. There's always a tradition. Human beings just can't help but exude traditions and, and patterns. And, and so I'm not saying people who are raising their hands in worship don't mean it, I'm, but I'm saying it's, easy, it's possible to learn to mimic that and flow with that. You can do it. You can even learn to do something that sounds like speaking in tongues if you really wanted to work at it and fit in. It's possible. We do it as Protestant evangelicals, right? We have our WWJD bracelet with matching mug, hat, and sweater and backpack. And, and our fish emblems. And I went down the aisle at an altar call, so therefore I must be a Christian because I walked down an aisle and I raised my hand when the evangelist asked me to. Does that make you a Christian? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Where, where's that in the Bible? I can't find altar calls in the Bible. Um, and what about finding stuff in our Bibles? The pastor says, turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. And you can see the Protestant evangelicals, they're like, got it right here, Habakkuk 3. First, you know, like my kids, first, I got it. Yeah, I know you're still struggling. I didn't really need to wait for the pastor to give me the page number because I know where Habakkuk is. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you know where Habakkuk is. Have you internalized the message of Habakkuk? Do you know what the message of Habakkuk is? The overall message of the book. It's a short little book. The message of Habakkuk is about learning to trust in the absolute sovereignty of God in the midst of a situation when the world is falling apart about you. When everything's coming apart and nothing makes sense, will you still trust God and His sovereign plans for you and praise Him? Can you do that? That's fruit if we can live that out in the midst of tragedy, chaos, and unexplainable horrors in our life. That's the message of Habakkuk. Where is the fruit? Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great 
19th century British pastor was walking down the street one day as he tells the story, and uh, he ran, bumped into this guy who was very intoxicated. And the fellow said, Mr. Spurgeon, I know you. He said, I'm one of your converts. And uh, the ever-witty Spurgeon looked at him and said, I'm sure you're one of my converts, because you're definitely not the Lord's convert. Show me the fruit. And so I think Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45, is a challenge to make sure that we examine our lives and not just assume that we are truly belong to Christ unless we see the fruit in our lives. Not that we are saved by fruit. It is not our deeds that save us. But at the same time, you're never saved without them. They, the, the salvation in our lives will always necessarily manifest itself in a transformed and transforming life. In fact, let's do this. Put a bookmark here in Luke chapter 6. Turn to the right into Galatians chapter 5. Those of you raised in the Baptist church can go there really quickly. The rest of you turn to page 1155. Someone hold up your Bible when you get there first. Hey, here we go. Rick Lupton, good job. Rick Lupton gets a lollipop. That's good. Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 19 and following. And this is uh, what we call uh, a, a vice virtue list. And you find a lot of these in the Apostle Paul. He gives us very, various virtue and vice lists. And they're just lists. They're, they're examples of what one life looks like and examples of what another life looks like. <clears throat> so look at verse 19. First, this is the life under the control of the self. This is the life that is self-dominated and self-directed. This is the life of the kingdom of this world. Verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality in all of its forms. Impurity. Debauchery. Just a reckless life. Idolatry. Witchcraft. Got to read my horoscope. Let's go to the tarot card reader. That's witchcraft. Hatred. You're an angry, bitter person. Discord. You always find yourself in the middle of a fight. Jealousy. Fits of rage. Selfish ambition, everyone around me is just a stepping stone to get what I want. Dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so we need to hold those lists up and say, which one is me? Not that any of us here will ever be 100% free from the first list or 100% evidencing the second list. If that's the standard you go by, then we're all going to run out of here in despair. But the question is, do I know, if I believe that I know Christ, that's the first step, and that I love Jesus, do I see in my life a steady progression over time, and if others noticed a steady progression over time, more and more like Christ. And the progression isn't like this. What it tends to be is it's kind of like this. But slowly over time, you know, heading up. And even when you get up here, you still notice there's something that looks like it's way back here, and so that keeps coming. But, but do you see growth in your life toward holiness? Is there fruit? You know fruit. It doesn't just go pop, ready. 
it, it buds and then a little bit comes and then it slowly ripens and you wait and you wait and you wait and the tomato slowly swells and then it slowly turns red and then it's finally ready. And, and so it is with Christ in us. It grows over a lifetime of following Him. So do we see that in our lives? That's the question. And if we don't, or if we're kind of questioning that, what do we do? Well, that leads me to the second key observation of this passage. The first is that a transformed life is the evidence of being a true follower of Jesus. The second, I think, associated truth is this. A transformed heart is the essence of being a follower of Jesus. Your life and your fruit is the evidence But the essence of being a Christian is a transformed heart. Who is a Christian? According to Scripture, as best as I understand it, a Christian is a person who has a living relationship with the living Christ such that that person is being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. That's what it is. That's a Christian. And that that living relationship with Christ is so multifaceted. It includes the forgiveness of my sins. It includes me being adopted into God's family. It includes me having my guilt taken away before God. I become a member of the kingdom of heaven. And I have a new heart. To become a Christian requires a complete heart transplant. Or to put it another way, you cannot become a Christian without God doing a miracle inside of your life. You must be, as Jesus said, born again. You have to be born again to become a Christian. That's Christ. He taught that. There has to be some radical transformation of my inner core which by itself is dead and dark. And so I need God to speak into the darkness of my heart and say, let there be light and do a miracle and create something new. I need Jesus to speak into my heart and say, arise, come forth and live. And so out of my, the dead tomb of my heart comes a new life. God has to do that. We can't do that for ourselves. You you can't make yourself a new creation. It's something that only God can do. And when He does it, you become a new person. And unfortunately, I think when we define Christianity in terms of things that, that we do, and that's the essence of Christianity. No, no, that's the evidence. The essence is God doing something new inside of us. And I think that's important because one of the things that's taken place in American evangelicalism over the last couple centuries, uh, especially from about the 1830s on, is that is that what it means to be a Christian has fundamentally shifted from what God does in us to what man chooses to do. And so the emphasis today is on decision. You've got to make a decision for Jesus. Well, yeah, we do. But, you know, the decision is simply the fruit of a transformed heart. Being a Christian is about God changing our hearts first, and then out of that comes the fruits of repentance and faith in Christ. It takes a miracle to become a follower of Christ. It takes a miracle to be able to decide for Christ. Because it's God who changes the heart. God is the one who saves. <clears throat> there was a lady in the church I know. Uh, I was talking to her recently. And um, she was uh, telling me a story about someone she knows who's known her both before and now after she became a Christian. And this lady is wonderful. I mean, her, her life is just changing before your very eyes. It's amazing. And she was having kind of an argument with this person she knows. And uh, the person was kind of attacking her a little bit and and accusing her of some things, and, and making assumptions about who she was and what she would do. And the lady responded, and this is what I thought was interesting when I tell you this story, the lady responded by saying, look, you don't know me. Which is an interesting comment, because this person did know her. He, he, this person had known her for years. But in another sense, he didn't know her. 
Because coming to Christ, she'd become a new creation. She was a new person. So when we look at our lives, just to connect the dots now, and we see either a lack of fruit or unripened fruit and we want more, what's the solution? Is the solution to work harder on the fruit? Well, I mean, you have to make an effort, but the the real solution is to work on the heart, to see the heart transformed. And so if you're a Christian like me and you look at your life, you say, you know what, I do see the fruit there. But gosh, I wish it was bigger. I wish it was juicier. And I don't see, and I see other things that I wish I was done with and I'm still there. What do you do? And the answer is go back to the heart. And let the flame of love for Jesus, the Holy Spirit put in you supernaturally, let that flame of love for Jesus get fanned up. You know, blow on it. Let let your love for Christ swell. That's why we come here to church Sunday after Sunday. It's so that we can gather together and stoke our flame of passion for Christ and love Him more. And as my love for Christ grows, as I study the Bible, not so I can say, well, I did my devotions today. (laughs) No, I, I study the Bible so that I can fall in love with Christ more. And I I meet with you as other believers and I go to Bible studies, not to say I went to a Bible study, but so that I can come out of the Bible study saying, I'm so glad I went. I'm just focused more on Christ. And as He stokes us up on the inside with love for Christ, what you'll find is that the, the, the old habits just seem lame and boring. When you're filled up with love for Christ, you know, pornography is just so lame and dry. It's like, ugh. And, and going out and going on a shopping spree and I've got to have the latest outfit and I have to have the next car and the next upgrade and all those things we obsess about. It's like, ah, oh, that's so boring. I, I want to use my money for Jesus. That's what I'm excited about. And our, our, th- those you know, siren voices calling us back to drugs or alcohol or, or nasty tempers or whatever it is that we used to do, it just kind of withers as our hearts are filled up with love for Christ. And so it is as the heart is filled up with Christ that the fruit will naturally bear. And yes, we must make an effort. Of course, we have to obey. But it must come from inside moving outwards. It never works the other way around. Or what if I look at my life and I say, you know what? I really don't know if I'm a Christian. I, I, mean, I thought I was. I think I am. I've gone to church. But, but I don't know if I am. I don't know if I love Christ like this. I would like to. This sounds great. But I don't know if I'm there. And I would just say to you, cry out to Christ and ask Him to change your heart. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I don't even know what to say. But just save me. Change my heart. I can't fix myself. Do it. You know? And keep praying that way until you have received what you asked for. If you will hold on to Christ and cry out to Him and ask Him to save you and not let go until you've received the blessing, like Jacob wrestling with the angel, hold on and you will be saved. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And I don't care what you have to do. Go down to Nantasket Beach at midnight so no one can hear you and just walk down the beach and scream at the top of your lungs, God save me. Whatever it takes, just do it and call out to Him. Until you can stand up and say confidently, I know that I am a new creation in Christ. And until you can say that with confidence, keep searching, seeking the Lord, because He will be found by those who seek Him with all their hearts. God will help you in the process. That was the message that was preached by a great revival leader, George Whitfield. Maybe you heard of him. He was a great preacher in the 
during the Great Awakening in the uh, 1700s. He preached here in Boston several times to crowds of thousands of people on Boston Commons. Uh, Whitfield probably preached to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in his lifetime. This is before internet and TV and all that stuff. Just preaching out in the open air to people. And thousands and thousands of people came to the Lord through his ministry. He's an incredible uh, man used by God. And uh, one of Whitfield's favorite texts as he traveled around preaching was John chapter 3, which was, you must be born again. And it was a radical message because in those days, you know, everybody was a Christian, right? In the 1700s in Britain and in the colonies, everyone was a Christian. And so to have this man standing up saying, you must be born again, people were like, whoo, am I born again? Am I a real Christian? And so I, I just bring to you today the words of Jesus and the words of Brother Whitfield down through the centuries. You must be born again. And so hold on and press on and keep searching for that and asking Christ to save you. And He will. He will. Because God always answers those who call upon Him to be saved. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray right now that You would penetrate our hearts with Your Holy Spirit. Lord, do not spare us the convicting work of the Spirit. Let Your Spirit lay our hearts open and show to each one of us where we stand with You. Oh God, I beg You that You would not let any of us leave this room today under false notions of where we stand with You. Lord, if we are Yours, confirm it and call us to greater fruit. And Lord, if we are not Yours, I pray that that whatever comfort we had would be stripped away. That we might even be in turmoil and, and internal torture for a time, if that's what it takes, to show us that we need to be saved. But Lord, show us the truth about where we are. And then Jesus, bring us to Yourself. We desire to be fruitful trees in the forest of Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. I'd like to ask our um, 